Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about potential justice of the Supreme Court uh, and Judge just Judge Kavanaugh. Joining me is President of Tech Freedom and a future Supreme Court Justice himself, Baron Zoka. Well, my only qualification for being a Supreme Court Justice, other than having a, a JD, is that I also went to Georgetown Prep, like Judge Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. And but, you're a white male, so that's a good that hires up your chances. All right, so Judge Kavanaugh is definitely a very divisive figure right now in American politics. Uh, a lot of people love or hate him without um, any basis. Reading his decisions, we at Tech Freedom have done a lot of research and read his opinions. We've known the work Judge Kavanaugh did before because we've encountered him uh, in our litigation. Baron, uh, where do you want to start analyzing this? Well, well, first, I just want to note that of the potential nominees, he is by far the the uh, the, the judge with the longest track record. Uh, Amy Barrett a- had been on the court for only nine months. Uh, judge Kavanaugh has been on the court for t- twelve years. Twelve years has written something like two hundred and forty decisions. So he's and it should be noted he's on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, of course. Nominally, all of the Court of Appeals are co-equal and they they all feed cases up to the Supreme Court. But as a practical matter, the D.C. Circuit is the court that handles the most important cases of constitutional and administrative law. So in that sense, it really is the second highest court in the land. And on that court, uh, Judge Kavanaugh has really distinguished himself again and again as being what one of our outside counsel called the best barometer of where the Supreme Court is heading. And and this is the overall theme for this episode today. A lot of people have criticized him for uh, either decisions that he has, uh, positions he's taken or um, or cases where he's he's not done something. And, and what I think they fail to acknowledge is that there's a fine line between uh, saying, for example, the Supreme Court has not change this precedent. And it's not up to me as a circuit court judge to do so. That's for the Supreme Court to do. And it might be that as a Supreme Court justice, he might rule very differently. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, But at the same time, there are circumstances where the court has been starting to change a particular doctrine. And it's not as clear as just reversing a single case. There can be a series of cases that lead up to a major shift in doctrine. And in a number of areas, Judge Kavanaugh has been I would say not pushing the envelope of the law, but he's been reading the Supreme Court's cases very carefully and saying, look, no other, no other circuit court of appeals has done this yet, but the Supreme Court is heading in a certain direction, and that's where we should go. And that's just a very important distinction to keep in mind throughout our discussion today, because that really shows that he it he's appropriately deferential to the Supreme Court in the role that he has been in. He might work differently as a justice but also that he, again, has played that really critical role in some of the particular cases we'll talk about today in predicting where the Supreme Court is heading. And in that sense, I think you can tell something about where he will go as a justice. Well, let's play the favorite game of the legal world, which is uh, let's analyze the previous decisions he's um, issued and try to predict the future. First comes up Chevron deference and the issue of Chevron that has ruled on in multiple cases, if I am not mistaken. What is your opinion on his rulings and his um, understanding of this part of their crucial part of admin law? Yeah, so this is the most uh, most boring but most important 
concept in American law. So 1984, the Supreme Court clarifies a bunch of somewhat confused decisions and, and says that where a statute is ambiguous and an agency is interpreting it, that the courts will defer to that agency's interpretation of an ambiguity so long as it is reasonable. Now, that has been the the issue on which most agency actions have been judged. And as a general matter, that means that the agencies win unless they violate one of the procedural requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. It's a very broad summary, but I think that's fair. Now, the court has, in a number of cases, has started to limit the application of Chevron deference. Uh, and, And that's, in some cases, that means um, blocking uh, attempts to regulate, but it means a lot of other things too. This is not just about uh, regulating big evil companies. This is also about whether the Bureau of um, Immigration um, Appeals or or other immigration-related agencies are able to interpret their statutes the way they want to. How much discretion do the agencies that they do the surveillance work have in interpreting uh, how far the mandate that Congress gave them goes or right. the president. Right. And and surveillance is a little complicated because it potentially raises a national security issue, which might, one could have, one could say we should not give agencies broad deference under Chevron and still have a robust view of um, national security authority. And, and that might be where Judge Kavanaugh is going. But as a general matter, um, there are a number of important cases, and I'll just start with the the most important one recently was the Pereira decision, where the issue before the Supreme Court, this is essentially, that was Justice Kennedy's last big decision on this subject, where the issue was essentially, does someone qualify for deportation? And the, it turned on an arcane question of how you read the, the statute. And Justice Kennedy sided with the immigrant in this case and said, we should not uh, grant Chevron deference to the agency. And that was the holding of the case more generally. But but in his concurrence, he said, I'm very concerned about where Chevron is going. And I always have been. And he pointed to his his joint uh, dissent in the city of Arlington case uh, several years earlier with, with uh, Chief Justice Roberts, where the issue was uh, whether agencies would get Chevron deference in interpreting the bounds of their authority. And essentially, Justice Kennedy says, I'm very concerned about this because we are effectively, as as a judiciary, we are ceding our role in deciding what the law means to the executive branch, to executive branch agencies or administrative uh, independent agencies. And that violates the separation of powers because that's something the courts are supposed to do to keep the legislature in check and also not give a blank check to the executive. So when you look at it that way, this is not about regulation or deregulation. It's really, as you say, how much deference does the government get? How much discretion does the government get? And Justice Kennedy was already saying the sorts of things that other justices across the political spectrum have said. It was Justice Breyer, before he was put on the court, in a law review article back in in the mid-'80s, talking about Chevron, who said, well, surely there must be some cases uh, what he called major questions or major rules, where it's not reasonable for us to presume that Congress intended ambiguity to be left up to the agency to resolve, because that, you know, yes, sometimes it might be uh, reasonable to think that, but but on big questions, we would essentially be allowing the legislative branch to 
allow the executive branch to finish the task of legislation. And legislation is something that ultimately, it's especially on these big questions, the Congress is supposed to do, and we shouldn't assume that Congress intended to leave that to the executive branch. So that was Justice Kennedy's view. And that's essentially what uh, Justice Gorsuch had said on the Tenth Circuit. He clearly believes that. I, I think uh, Justice Thomas clearly believes that. And you've had a number of decisions where you've had some left of center uh, justices uh, who've said that, most notably the Utility Air Regulatory Group case that the Supreme Court decided in 2014, where the EPA essentially said, yeah, we acknowledge that if we were to apply the Clean Air Act uh, literally uh, to every uh, home in America, that that would produce absurd results. Well, the court said the the, the fact that you, you acknowledge that means that y- you should have been alerted to your interpretation going wrong somewhere. And, and I'm, I'm mentioning this because not only is that an important line of cases in where the Supreme Court is going in, in blocking the application of Chevron, but that case turned on a Kavanaugh dissent at the D.C. Circuit in 2012. So you had Kavanaugh and another judge, Judge Brown, dissenting. It led to the Supreme Court saying this. He was dissenting based on other Supreme Court decisions. So he's in that back and forth, if you will, with the Supreme Court. So fast forward to our case. This is why we know him well, because uh, when we in 2014, when the UARC decision came down, the FCC was was in its open internet order proceeding. And they were, at that point, changing gears and claiming broad authority to regulate the internet under Title II and saying, don't worry, we're going to tailor Title II. We'll make it work for the internet age. And to us, that sounded exactly like UARC. So that's why we got involved in that case. And when the FCC ultimately did decide to invoke Title II and to tailor and modernize Title II, we joined the litigation against the FCC as the interveners and said, hey, this is UARG all over again. And what could be a more major question, per Justice Breyer, than regulation of the internet, the ability to impose price controls and all those other things. So the, we lost at the panel. We got one dissent at the panel stage in 2016. And then in 2017, that went up to the full DC circuit and the same two judges, Judges Kavanaugh and Brown, agreed with us. And Judge Kavanaugh's opinion is, I think, the clearest statement thus far of, of why Chevron can, can a deference can violate the separation of powers. So he wrote about that at great length. I think he's right. I think that's where the court is heading. And it's only a matter of time before the Supreme Court limits the application of Chevron. And that's not going to be the end of the administrative state. It just means that the courts are going to have to do what they, what they always do, which is read the law, and evaluate it for themselves. Arizona has already abolished uh, Chevron deference, and the sky hasn't fallen. All right. So why is the Chevron deference, that very constitutional and admin law dorky question, making a lot of waves as a partisan uh, turning point? Well, so this is ironic because people are looking at that and saying he hates net neutrality, he's going to support big corporations, and he's against regulation. When in fact, as we've already discussed, what this is really about is how much deference does the government get? And so ironically, you have the same people who are hysterical about the Trump administration, who think this is uh, the second coming of Nazi Germany, who think that we should defer to the executive branch. I mean, that's what they're saying, right? If they were really more thoughtful about this, they would acknowledge that Chevron deference is the greatest shield that the Trump administration across the board, or, or any administration, but, but Trump in particular, that his agencies could use to, to do all kinds of crazy things. And if they really thought about it, Trump's critics, 
they would say, yeah, we'd be better off limiting Chevron deference because we don't want the agencies to win all the time. So I think they're not thinking this through carefully. And a decision like Pereira that the Supreme Court just handed down, I think is important because it illustrates that Chevron deference, again, is not just about regulation. It's about immigration law and everything else that the government does to individual citizens. It's the same underlying issue. So the same case also raised a lot of First Amendment issues that um, are an outlier of Kavanaugh's views on the legal issue. So what, what was his dissent in, in the U.S. telecom case? Well, his dissent had, had two parts. The first part was entirely our argument, which was, of course, originally his argument, which originally came from Supreme Court justices about the major questions doctrine. But the second part was First Amendment. Uh, uh, argument. And basically what he said, and, and, and here again, you have people who are totally hysterical now about uh, Judge Kavanaugh's uh, opinion in this case saying this is going to mean the end of regulation and and um, we're not going to have any form of telecommunications regulation. That That's nonsense. Uh, it does signal there are going to be some changes and we can talk about what those are. But he, he pointed back to the Supreme Court's two landmark decisions in this area. Uh, there were two cases involving Turner Broadcasting in 94 and 97. And in both of those cases, the uh, company made First Amendment arguments and the Supreme Court said, we're going to uphold the regulations at issue, which were regulations of cable companies um, because of the unique bottleneck power of cable companies. And that's basically where this uh, case law has stood since then. This has not been revisited. And and all Justice, excuse me, all Judge Kavanaugh says in his uh, opinion is that um, the world has changed pretty fundamentally since 94 and, and 97. And uh, and that's something that the agency should have to deal with. But the agency didn't. I mean, the FCC didn't even try to say that cable still had that um, bottleneck power or even any kind of monopoly power. In fact, the agency said just the opposite. The open internet order very clearly says our rules do not depend on cable companies having market power. They apply no matter how much competition there is in the broadband market, no matter how small the cable company. And Judge Kavanaugh rightly says that is not supported by the Supreme Court's decisions. You've got to show some degree of market power in order to justify regulation. You didn't get into how much, but you have to show some. So really all we know is what the Supreme Court already said, and he's willing to take that very seriously. So if anything, I view his opinion as one, consistent with what the Supreme Court has said, two, more reflective of the facts as they exist today, and three, if anything, it should be encouraging that he's he takes the First Amendment seriously, and he's not willing to pick and choose, right? And as he notes here, that going down that road could create real problems. I mean, he says, for example, consider the implications if the law were otherwise. If market power need not be shown, the government could regulate the editorial decisions of Facebook and Google, of MSNBC, of Fox, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, YouTube, and Twitter. Can the government really force Google, Facebook, and all those other entities to operate as common carriers? Can they impose forced common carriage or equal access obligations on YouTube and Twitter? That is the implication of the government's argument in those cases, and that's profoundly disturbing. That that would be the kind of authoritarian uh, or basis for authoritarian government that, that I think people rightly worry about today. So do you think this is a good uh, sign that cable rules such as mass carry and program access might go away if Kavanaugh is appointed a Supreme Court justice? Well, those things are going to go away anyway. 
Uh, I've been saying that since 2010. I first filed an amicus brief for the D.C. Circuit, pointing out that the basis for those rules no longer exists, that you now have uh, competition in those markets, which did not exist at all in, in um, at the time of these Supreme Court decisions. Uh, so it was only a matter of time. But yes, I think Judge Kavanaugh clearly acknowledges that. But I don't think he would rule any differently on those questions than, than Justice Kennedy. So it's important here to ask what what's the, the delta between the two of them. I don't think there is one. Um, maybe he's encouraged or his opinion will encourage other people to bring those cases, those challenges. Maybe it encourages the FCC to repeal those rules. Maybe that's how litigation starts. But one way or another, the the writing is already on the wall. Uh, and I, you know, we talk about this on the show a lot. There are two kinds of regulation. There's sector-specific regulation that's justified by some unique concern market power, public safety, national security. And then there's generally applicable consumer protection and competition regulation. And if the unique market power disappears in a market, maybe that means getting rid of the unique telecom regulation. But that doesn't mean the market goes unregulated. If the must-carry rules and program access rules disappeared, you'd still have generally applicable competition law policing the the market between cable providers and programmers and, and consumers. And now let's turn to the other main issue that people raise when they talk about the nomination of just Judge Kavanaugh, still judge. Um, it's a Fourth Amendment and his opinion on Fourth Amendment in this digital age and the national security issues that come when law enforcement agencies use the bulk uh, collection of data. Um, some say that Kavanaugh, even though he, you know, is the dream candidate for a lot of conservatives, he is not a dream candidate for the libertarian wing of the Republican Party and the libertarians in general who don't associate with the Republican Party. Because um, based on the track record that he has, he, for example, doesn't believe that there's expectation of privacy um, on highways when a GPS device um, is attached to a suspect's car. Or um, he also wrote that the National Security Agency's bulk collection of phone records um, is entirely consistent with a Fourth Amendment, since of uh, national security kind of trumps the expectation of privacy in this case. Yeah. So let, let's start with the law enforcement case. So, so you are referring to the Jones case. Most people know that back in 2012, the Supreme Court decided in the Jones case that if you plant a a, a tracker on someone's car that that constitutes a, a, a search under the Fourth Amendment. They may not know that the original underlying decision was a, a D.C. Circuit decision where the D.C. Circuit uh, denied rehearing uh, from an appeal by uh, from a lower court in D.C. And uh, there was a opinion written by the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit uh, that, that um, expressed a skepticism about the, the idea that you could uh, through aggregation of information that was otherwise publicly available, that at some point that could be a Fourth Amendment problem. Um, and Judge, Judge Kavanaugh joined that and he wrote a separate opinion. Now, so there's two different issues in that case. And what you said a moment ago is, is I think, not accurate in one important respect. The, the, that, that case involved the planting of a, of a bug on the car. And that was ultimately the grounds on which the Supreme Court decided the case. They said, look, it's a physical trespass and physical trespass 
has always been considered a search, easy case, we're done, we don't have to deal with aggregation. So aggregation doesn't actually come up until the Carpenter decision this year. So, and, and if we're evaluating Judge Kavanaugh, it's important to note that in his separate opinion, he specifically said uh, there might be a physical trespass issue here and that should be handled separately. So he did not actually express an opinion on that question. But this is not an issue. We are analyzing it not from the angle of, oh, is this a trespass or not? We're analyzing it from the angle of what are what is his interpretation of a Fourth Amendment and of a privacy and expectation of privacy? Yeah. And he has said that when you are on a highway, a person traveling in an automobile on a public through fares has no reasonable expectation of privacy in his movements from one place to another. Well, so he, here's why I emphasize at the outset that we have to be very careful to distinguish between the proper role of a circuit court judge and what the Supreme Court is supposed to do in clarifying precedent. So as he noted at that time, all of the circuits agreed in, in that conclusion, right? And and the reason here is it's really important to, to note that, remember, um, well, I'll just quote from what the chief judge said in writing that decision. He said, I cannot discern any distinction between the supposed invasion by aggregation of data between the GPS augmented surveillance and a purely visual surveillance of substantial length. In other words, the, 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 the thing that the court had always been hung up on was you could follow someone, you could visually surveil them for weeks, and that would not constitute a search because they're in public. And that that is still the law. That has never been questioned. What the Supreme Court later said in the Carpenter decision, um, so Jones is about physical planting of the tracker. Carpenter said, well, if there's a technology that rises to the to the level of tracking every single movement all the time because everyone has effectively a tracking device that is their phone that reports that information constantly, that that's fundamentally different. Now, I'm glad that, that Carpenter was decided the way it was. We were very supportive of that outcome. I don't think it's fair to uh, judge Judge Kavanaugh's opinion uh, back in 2010 against that. I don't think that his failing to get out ahead of the court at that time tells us much about what he would have done if he were on the Supreme Court when the Carpenter decision was decided. And that, that that's the way in which I think a lot of people are reading these decisions unfairly. Uh, and, and again, um, he was very clear that the, uh, the, 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 the physical tracking would turn out differently and the Supreme Court actually decided that. But I wouldn't make too much of that case. Now, Let's talk about the bulk collection that we don't really agree on here at Tech Freedom between me and you. Well, I'm not sure we don't agree, but let's <laughs> let, let's unpack this. So, okay, so the bulk, have you explained bulk collection? Essentially, everyone's getting their information collected, yes. right? It's just getting swift up and held somewhere. And then imagine... Manny sitting at a desk somewhere in NSA, just using a database and being able to search and find whatever is in that database that was collected without a warrant. Okay. So, so the case is Clayman versus Obama. It's 2015. Uh, the DC circuit denies cert. Um, and, and I want to note here that there were no judges, not one who wanted to, um, 
I said cert. They wanted, uh, they denied review of a lower court decision. So Judge Kavanaugh was in no way an outlier. Now, what is a little bit di- unusual is he took the time and the effort to write an opinion. So in most cases where judges uh, d- deny rehearing of a panel of that same court, they generally don't write opinions. Now, he did. And he did say, quote, the government's metadata collection program is entirely consistent with the Fourth Amendment, and therefore the plaintiffs can't show likelihood of success on the merits of their claims. Um, and in, in particular, he says the government's collection of um, telephone metadata, you know, who you're calling, that sort of information, uh, is not considered a search under the Fourth Amendment, at least under the Supreme Court's decision in Smith versus Maryland from 1979. And he says that precedent remains binding on lower courts in our hierarchical system of absolute vertical stare decisis. Here again, he's saying this is up to the Supreme Court. But do you want to flash back to a time he was in the Bush administration? Because Bush administration was the leading power on obviously USA Patriot Act and just justifying national security over constitutional rights. Obviously, it was a hard time. Um, There was USA Freedom that was passed since then. However, I think when we look at the different pieces of a puzzle, one might argue that Kavanaugh taking time to write this decision um, and explain it, uh, Kavanaugh working for a Bush administration in the times where they were justifying all of this national security driven um, bulk collection and violation of some of the privacy rights because national security over everything else um, can be a really vivid sign that when he is on the Supreme Court, because he probably is, he will side with that side of argument. It, it could be. You may be right. My point is just that I think it's still, it's still too soon to tell. He, he, look, I am horrified by the, the Bush administration's approach to national security. Um, uh, former FBI Director Comey's book, uh, Higher Loyalty, tells the story of what the Bush administration was doing and his attempts to get them to roll back these aggressive legal interpretations. I don't know where, where Kavanaugh fell in that. It's hard to tell. There were people on both sides of that inside the administration. Maybe he was one of the bad guys. I don't know. I'm only trying to point out that what he said at the time about Smith versus Maryland was correct. It is true that the NSA collection of metadata was consistent with existing Supreme Court precedent at the time. That does not necessarily mean it's consistent with the Fourth Amendment. But as he notes, this is a question of of the Supreme Court having to decide this. This precedent remains binding on lower courts in our hierarchical system of absolute vertical stare decisis. And that's why I said at at the outset here, it's one thing for a judge in his situation to say, the Supreme Court has already started to tell us that this underlying precedent is no longer good law. I think that's what's been happening on Chevron. It's quite another thing for a, a an appellate court judge to say, I don't think that this is consistent with uh, the Fourth Amendment, even though all the Supreme Court decision says, uh, case law says so, and I'm going to start changing the law. And I, I, I would like to believe, now maybe, maybe I will be proven wrong. We can play this episode back in two years, and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong. But for now, I'm going to assume that he's simply expressing his view about the role of the courts. Um, but the question this is going to turn on, and this is the thing that I think maybe gives me greater 
uh, pause than the fact that he worked in the Bush administration or the fact that he said that about the state of the law at the time was uh, what what is the exception for national security? And he says here, and I'll just quote, because this, this I think, is going to prove crucial in understanding how he might uh, rule in these cases. He says, the government's program for bulk collection of metadata serves a critically important special need, preventing terrorist attacks on the United States. See the 9-11 Commission report. In my view, the critical national security need outweighs the impact on privacy occasioned by this program. The government's program does not capture the content of communication, but rather the time and duration of calls and the numbers called. In short, the government's program fits comfortably within the Supreme Court precedents applying the special needs doctrine. So then the question is, well, what is that doctrine? What are the exceptions? And all we have to go on that's more current than that is uh, not in the context of national security, but in the Carpenter decision, which again was just about law enforcement. The court did talk about this and they say um, for law enforcement, the exception applies when the exigencies of the situation make the needs of law enforcement so compelling that a warrantless search is objectively reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. And the examples they give are fleeing suspects, protecting individuals who are threatened with imminent harm, protecting imminent destruction of evidence. Those are pretty compelling examples because they're urgent. National security is harder because the urgency is more diffuse. And then we turn to some of the precedents that we have. For example, Second Circuit talks about the weight and the immediacy of a government interest, the nature of a privacy interest that is going to be harmed by the search, the character of intrusion, and the efficiency of the search in advancing the government interest. So those are pretty good um, limits to you know, use. However, this has never been taken up by the Supreme Court. And in the Carpenter decision, Chief Justice Robert writing for the majority, uh, he actually explicitly says this decision is not touching upon any collection that is for foreign affairs or national security, leaving that up, that question open for the future. And, and it's really worth noting that the Carpenter decision was Roberts joined by the four uh, left-leaning justices. In other words, even Kennedy wasn't going to to do what Roberts did and say the aggregation of data creates a Fourth Amendment problem. So, you know, at most here, I actually don't think you're likely to see much of a difference between Kavanaugh and Kennedy. It might be a missed opportunity to get someone on the court who would go further. At worst, However, if we, sorry, sidetrack, uh, Kefridge, um, Barrett, and Hardiman, they would have not been better in Fourth Amendment. That's the only thing I can say in regards to this. We've looked through their decisions and generally analyzing um, their views of the legal system and of the law. None of them would have been better in the Fourth Amendment. And as you said, Kavanaugh is question mark, not exclamation point so far. Well, it's worth noting that that there was one decision by Kethledge that would have granted standing to someone who was challenging an NSA program. And that's really important because if you can't get standing, you don't even get your foot in the door. You don't even know what's going on. Yeah. But look, worst case scenario is that Kavanaugh turns out to be another Alito who says exactly the same thing that Kavanaugh said in the quote that I just read you. But then always applies the exception and says essentially anytime there's a national security need that the exception applies. That is possible. Will that happen? I don't know. And really no one does. I, I'm very skeptical of that because I think if you look at Judge Kavanaugh's opinions overall, I think you see he was a Kennedy clerk. And Kennedy fundamentally was interested in, in 
rights and and the victimization of groups. And I think you'll see that from from Kavanaugh in a way that you don't at all from Alito. So before I run out of a door, do you want to talk about the doormat clause? Is there anything you found? Uh, the doormat clause is a very um, underappreciated aspect of Supreme Court jurisprudence, um, sometimes known as the dormant commerce clause. Uh, it essentially says that uh, the Supreme Court is going to protect the sovereignty of the federal government over interstate commerce, even where Congress has not acted. So even when there is no legislation, there's no preemption, states can't do things that intrude upon interstate commerce. This is really important for internet jurisprudence. And of course, we close this term with um, uh, Justice Kennedy uh, writing the opinion in Wayfair that effectively reversed the Supreme Court's 1992 decision in Quill, which had said that you need to have a physical presence to be able to tax what happens in a state. Now, this opens the door to an, a new round of litigation about what what is the, do, the dormant commerce clause analysis, what other interests are at stake, how do you balance those in deciding what a state can and can't regulate. So that's where Kennedy was. So in other words, we already have some erosion of this. We already know that Gorsuch and Thomas have expressed uh, grave skepticism about the dormant commerce clause. It, it really matters what Kavanaugh does. So unfortunately, we looked and we really didn't find anything. There's one case that's sort of vaguely on point about uh, state taxation of um, tobacco online, but that's really a very different case because there was already a federal law. So no one really knows, uh, but we're all going to be waiting to see what he will do on federalism cases more generally. He clearly cares a lot about the separation of powers. That's what his Chevron jurisprudence is about. And federalism is just another axis of the separation of powers. So it's possible that he might take a more robust view of what the states can do. On the other hand, the internet is a uniquely interstate medium and normal principles of federalism don't necessarily apply. You could be a strong federalist and still think that states can't regulate that interstate medium because it's just in the specific province of Congress. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, we looked into the crystal bowl and gave you whatever we could find and an analysis we hope helps. I'm personally looking forward to over-protest in front of a Supreme Court because the signs are usually very funny. If you want to send a care package to Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Stephen Breyer, the address is 1 First Street Northeast, Washington, D.C., 20543. Or, or you could just send it to us and we'd carry it over because we're right next door. Yes, we can send it to us and we'll probably not carry them over. We do need food. <laughs> all right, Darren, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for letting me talk all the time. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review if you want to talk. Uh, if you want Baron to talk less and me to talk more, you can put that in the I, comments. I, I actually do. I, I feel bad about that, but I had a lot to say about this particular it's topic. It's okay, guys. Uh, Baron wants to create as much of a track record um, on every possible medium for his Supreme Court nomination hearing. So thank you for listening. Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.